So we're going to get into part three of Aristotle's Poetics. In this episode, we're going to talk about complex plots. That's where we left off last time. A complex plot includes reversals and recognitions. We'll talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about character development and all of the other loose ends from the last couple of chapters of the book. So with all that said, let's jump in. The change of fortune of your character should not go from bad to good, but from good to bad if you want us to care, right? This is their journey. Things need to get worse. They need to get harder for your character. And it should come as a result of some great error of theirs. You can have a reversal in a complex plot. Let's say you're after, you're aspiring to write a complex plot, a story that contains levels. It's not a simple plot. It's not a high concept idea that's very simple to understand. It's a little bit more complex. Well, then your goal would be to have a reversal and a recognition. That becomes most powerful is when your character recognizes that. So that moment of recognition is the powerful moment, right? The event happens and they caused it. That's the big thing about a reversal, right? Your character causes it. Your character's actions cause it to happen. So as they're going along their story, cause and effect, their choices are causing the story to happen. And they're on a path to get what they want, creating all of these things to happen. And then they get what they want and it gives them the exact opposite of what they actually wanted and in tragedies causes their own demise. That is a reversal. And the cathartic moment is the recognition when it happens. And so in this next section, he talks about the different kinds of recognition, the different ways that you can accomplish this recognizing moment from your main character of how they caused their own demise. So you can have um, recognitions when they realize that they've caused harm onto someone, not realizing that the person that they caused harm to was someone that they loved. There's those kinds of stories with reversals. You're my enemy. You're my enemy. I'm going to kill you. But then I find out that actually you're my father. Star Wars classic. There's also um, a recognition that comes from a memory. So you think you, you're, you're spending your time with this person, you know, you're set, you're spending your time on this journey, going after this action. You want something to happen. You cause that thing to happen. And then after it happens, something jogs your memory and you have a realization based on a memory that you're just now having. One of the best examples of this could be the movie Arrival. If you've seen Arrival, at one point she realizes that well, I won't spoil arrival for you, but in terms of memory, in terms of going after something and finally getting it and the, the recognition of what has actually happened flips everything on its head is a type of recognition, a recognition through memory. So you can have a recognition through a visual aid, a recognition through a memory. And then you could also have a recognition through a process of reasoning. And he argues that this is the best form of creating a recognition. A recognition 
which arises from the incidents themselves. When you put the pieces together based on the events of the story, like usual suspects. I finally gotten all the pieces to the story. I let verbal go. I get a visual clue. And then I start to put all the pieces together of the events of the entire movie. And I realize I have the recognition that it was all a lie. And by being duped, I sealed my fate to never solve this crime. So even though you could say the recognition was spurred on by the talisman of the cup with Kobayashi at the bottom of the cup, that's not the full recognition. That's the instigator of the recognition. And then he starts putting the pieces of all of the events together. It's not, oh, I see a birthmark and now I know you're my son or you even, even, you know, or you tell me you're my dad, right? It's kind of an easy recognition. It's a reversal, but Star Wars is an easy recognition. Recognitions in which you're putting all the pieces together of the story that we just watched are the most powerful recognitions. And again, not every story is going to have these groundbreaking moments of recognition. The idea is that if your story calls for it, that it's there. But if you're writing a simple plot, you don't have to concern yourself too much with this. And if you're writing a complex plot, think about ways upon which you can incorporate this into your story. But once again, the most important thing is that these, these reveals and recognitions are happening from within your own plot. They're not coming from outside your story to make it more interesting. Everything's happening from the inside of your story. A recognition is a change from ignorance to knowledge. That's a really simple way to put it. When your character goes from ignorance to knowledge. An example of a very simple recognition that was very powerful. It was in Get Out. The thing Chris wanted most was to be able to trust his girlfriend because she was all he had in the world, right? He confesses to her, you're all I have. His mother died. Because he wanted to be able to trust her so badly, he remained in the house. So his need to trust her sealed his fate by being trapped in the house. So that when he sees the pictures, he starts to go from ignorance to knowledge. And when she refuses to give him the keys and confesses that she is a part of this scam, the whole time, the recognition from him comes from her confession. And it's effective, be it's effective because we've been invested in what he wants so badly throughout the whole story. So when it flips and it turns out that he can't trust her and now he's trapped in the house, it's powerful. This is why that moment is so powerful. And the way that you create that is by putting the character on a journey to try to get this thing that they want more than anything else. And then when they get it, that's the thing that turns out to cause their demise. That's a reversal. And then when we watch them realize it, that's the recognition. And recognitions can be brought about again by physical traits, by memories, or by you yourself piecing the incidents together and realizing that it doesn't add up and then retracing it and putting them all back together again the right way. And then you realize another aspect of a complex story is a scene of suffering. You see this a lot with the Greek tragedies. It, they do have worth in our modern day screenwriting and storytelling, meaning that there is a reversal. 
your character's fortunes have gone from bad to worse because of this reversal that they brought on themselves. They have the moment of recognition where they realize it. And then a scene of suffering is just to let us sit there with them and experience the suffering that they feel because of this, showing us what the price is that's paid for this reversal the emotional consequences. That's the modern day equivalent to the Greek tragedies scene of suffering. A lot of times complex stories have multiple storylines or as we know, multiple points of view in a, in a movie. And the way that Aristotle puts it, he says that a well-constructed plot should be single in its issue rather than double. And when you have multiple storylines, the idea that each storyline should be single in its issue is him telling us that if you have multiple storylines, each one of those storylines needs to be singular in its action line as well. That means that each storyline has to have its own arc. I talk about this a lot. If you tell me that I'm going to go follow another character within this story. I'm leaving my main character and I'm going to go watch another character do things. That character needs to have their own arc. They need to have their own literal and emotional question. And they have to have their own action line. The action line can be a subplot and not be as big a part of the story as your main character's story. But if it exists, it must have its own arc. It must be singular in its issue is how he puts it here in poetics. And that's what he's talking about. The most interesting thing about multiple storylines, which we see in a lot of um, multiple storyline movies, the singular issue is the theme. So in movies like Babel and Crash and Syriana and Magnolia, the singular issue the storyteller is dealing with is the theme of what they're trying to say about the world. That's what's acting as the singular issue. Even though I'm telling different stories, I'm confronting the same issue. So Aristotle's rule that a well-constructed plot should be single in its issue doesn't mean you only have to have one storyline. It means you have to be telling the same story with different storylines. One movie can only explore one thing. You can explore different facets of that one thing. That one thing can be very multi-layered and you're exploring a different part of that thing in different storylines, but it needs to be singular in its issue is his message to us. If you want us to experience it as a whole and have a cathartic journey with this story. Your story is an action that goes from point A to point B. What is the story you're telling? The story events need to be maintained in this internal structure, each thing causing the next to happen. Nothing can come in from the outside. And one of the ways that he describes Things that come in from the outside to save your hero is a phrase many of us are familiar with, which is deus ex machina, the machine of the gods. In other words, your hero is being saved by the heavens. That's bad 
<laughs> he doesn't ever want us to do this. He wants all of our action to come from the internal story. Aristotle talks about character and he says this. He says a lot of things, but, but the one thing that is really pertinent is this. The character will be good if their purpose is good. That's it. What's your character's need? What's their purpose? If that purpose is good, if it's strong enough, if there's enough stakes involved in that need, in that purpose, the character will be good. And it's very powerful to think of it like that. Of course, they have to have traits, right? But if you put your character in a situation where they have a need, there's obstacles in front of that need, and the need has stakes. We're going to care about your character, and it will be a good character. We have to watch them go after the things that they want. So some other traits that he talks about for characters that make your um, character a worthy character, a character we can get behind. And it's not a, an end-all, be-all, end-all, right? We have anti-heroes. But for the most part, your character needs to have a, a good, strong purpose with stakes. But they also should aim at propriety, right? In a lot of ways, we don't want to watch a character who acts in disgusting and gross ways, right? Again, it's not be all end all. I mean, look at Shrek, right? <laughs> I get it. I get it. They're also, they also should be true to life, right? This is a distinct thing. Your characters need to be true to life. So even if they are the big heroes like Indiana Jones, they still have a fear of snakes. Give your characters flaws, give them fears, make them three-dimensional. True to life is another way of saying three-dimensional. And the way you can make a hero character, quote unquote, the hero archetype three-dimensional is by giving them flaws and fears. Something else that he says that's great is that we get to know your character by what they choose and what they avoid. So a great way to show us that they're true to life is show us the choices that they're making that are human. And then, and then another point that he makes about developing characters, which is also very important, is consistency. You have to be consistent. Very often we hear things like, what are the rules of your universe? Well, that applies to character almost more than, than, than any other rule of the universe, right? So, you know, um, if you're, you have a character who is fearless, right? Then they can't all of a sudden be fearful because you want them not to go into the burning building because of some story point. If they make the transformation from one thing to another, I need to see it happen. And that needs to be part of the story. Whoever you create on page one has to consistently be that same person until you physically show me how the transformation occurs. Because the consistency of the character is part of the pieces of the character arcs puzzle. And then he goes on to say, if you have a character who's inconsistent, then that's the consistency. So if you have a character who, who can't make a choice or they, they're inconsistent, then the, their journey will be towards consistency. But their inconsistency is what needs to remain the same until the transformation takes place. Another thing he says about character that's interesting is that they should only speak by necessity. They should only speak by necessity. And that is just a comment on dialogue. So even if you have a character-driven movie that's not an action-oriented movie, 
quote unquote, that doesn't mean that your character doesn't need to make choices. It's just more of a character driven movie without big action set pieces, et cetera, et cetera. Their dialogue still needs to stem from necessity. Really think about that. Everything they say, there should be a need underneath. They need something. They're trying to get something by what they're saying. No dialogue is arbitrary or should be arbitrary in a screenplay. And even if you think of the best scenes of dialogue, right, there's always a need to be heard. If the need to be heard and understood is the need, that's good enough. If the need to make a point because there's a point to the point, (laughs) that's good enough. Very often, the best dialogue, if you go back and you, you have your favorite movies with scenes of dialogue, very often, it seems like they're talking about nothing. What they're talking about is the need to make a point to establish their sense of self. If it's good, if it's a good movie and it's good dialogue, it's establishing a need to establish themselves. This is my opinion. And the reason why I'm telling you it is because I need you to know that this is who I am as a person and I'm not going to back down on it. Then it becomes great dialogue and there's a reason for it. And I know why I'm watching it and I'm engaged because that's the subtext. So yeah, a character should speak by the rule of necessity. I mean, because what he says here is so pertinent. He says, make a likeness which is true to life and yet more beautiful. So we're not telling true life. We're not. We'll turn on the news to watch true life stories, right? We are telling stories that are true to life, but more beautiful. That's our goal. So the answer, well, it could happen in real life is is not the answer. That's not what we're telling. We're not news reporters. We're architects of great stories. And stories is a heightened reality. It's more beautiful than life. Even if you're telling a story about pain, the idea is that the telling of it is higher than our true selves on the ground in real life. So it's a complicated amalgam of I'm telling a heightened story about true people. And so the character needs to be true, but the events and the actions need to be heightened. He also says that for the story, If the poet is constructing the story itself, he should first sketch its general outline and then fill in the episodes and amplify the detail. And so this is the writing by structure process written down right here in Poetics 2000 years ago. Sketch a general outline of your story first and then fill it in and amplify the details. He calls them episodes. Episodic is where that word comes from, which is story to story to story. Sketch the general outline of your story first and then fill in the details. Amplify in detail. That's what we do at Writing by Structure. We find our story through the monomyth and then we plot it in detail. The last few chapters of Poetics gets into real tedium of what exactly is a word? What exactly is a sentence, right? Um, A whole bunch of uh, details in how to actually construct paragraphs of of words in tragic um, stories and epic poems, right? So there's a a big discussion about what's better, an epic poem or a tragedy. And an epic poem is told verbally, whereas a tragedy is on stage, right? So we're talking about literary novels as opposed to actually dramatic plays or films, right? And he goes into a whole discussion 
I'm only going to pick out the parts that apply to screenwriting. And and this really applies to playwriting, what he says here um, in chapter 18, which is that every tragedy falls into two parts. Every piece of dramatic action falls into two parts, the complication and the unraveling, right? So the first part is the complication. You, you, you're going up, 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 up to the complication. The, the event of the complication happens, and then it's the unraveling or the denouement. So it's a very simplistic way of looking at all drama. Plays really, truly follow this, this structure. Screenwriting is a little different because you have to go scene to scene to scene to scene. But in a play, it's much more like a musical um, arrangement, a movement in a piece of music, whereas you're setting up all of this information, right, that's leading to this big complication. And then the complication arises, and then it's the unraveling after the reveal of the complication, the denouement. And then he says this little thing, which I thought was neat, where he says the chorus, right? Because in Greek tragedies, there was the chorus, right? That what we know of as the chorus, right? Um, It should be an integral part of the whole and share in the action. The chorus should be regarded as one of the actors. It should be an integral part of the whole and share in the action. So the way that I look at modern day choruses is what? Voiceovers. The the idea of the chorus was to give us the background, the information that we need to come into the story, right? All the Greek tragedies. That's what the job of the chorus was. So the modern day chorus in film in screenwriting is the voiceover. Do you need the voiceover or do you not? Well, here's what Aristotle says about voiceovers by way of choruses. It should be regarded as one of the actors. It should be an integral part of the whole and it should share in the action. It's a wonderful way to describe a voiceover. Don't tell me what I'm already seeing. He also says something neat, which is in regards to diction, which I view as dialogue. And what he says is this, it's not the poet's job to tell the actors how to act. I'm just supposed to say what happens in the play. I'm supposed to say what happens. And then the actors can decide how to act out what happens. For instance, he says, what is a command, a prayer, a statement, a threat, a question, an answer? To know or not to know these things involves no censure upon the poet's art. To tell someone to do a thing or not to do it is a command. This inquiry belongs to another art, not to poetry. And who the art that it belongs to is actors and directors, not the poets. I thought that was very interesting. The final piece that poetics has in it that we should pay attention to as screenwriters is this idea that your subject should be a single action. He listen, he repeats himself many times throughout the book. So if you do read this and you're reading it thinking that he's saying something new that you're not getting, it's not true. He just consistently repeats and repeats the things that he says to hammer it home and in reference to a new thing that he will say. So what he says is this, your, um, your dramatic action is a single action. It should be whole and complete, a beginning, a middle, and an end revolving around that action. It will resemble a living organism in all its unity. It's just unity of plot. The living organism is your story. It will produce pleasure. It will incite pity and fear, and it will differ from historical compositions, which 
of necessity present not a single action, but a single period. It would be too vast a theme and not easily embraced in a single view. So this is the last piece of poetics that I'm going to leave you with. What he's saying here is that we are poets. We are not historical retellers. We are not retellers of history. We're not historians. So even if you have a historical piece that you're telling, it's your job to construct a singular story around that historical event. Because the actual event or an actual whole person's life, he says, is too vast and not easily embraced in a single view. It's a brilliant way to say you cannot tell a person's whole life story. You have to pick the story you're trying to tell and tell that part of it. The same thing with a historical event. Do not try to tell the story of World War II. Tell the story of the storming the beaches at Normandy, right? We've seen this a thousand times. Do you see the difference? Pick one part. What is the story you want to tell? How do I use this person's life story to tell this story? You cannot tell the whole thing. And you cannot tell the whole story of an historical event without having a take on what the insular story is. It is too vast and not easily embraced in a single view, which is what a movie is. And on that, we will end our exploration into poetics and what it means to screenwriting today. I truly hope that this has been helpful because these tenets of story help me over and over to reframe my thinking about my own stories. Is this too big? Do I have to make it smaller? Am I pulling things from outside my story? No, I can't bring new things in on page 50. By page 50, I have to use everything I've already set up. Nothing can come in from the outside. And if something new comes in on page 50, it better not be new. I better have set it up in act one that it's coming. That's insular. That's staying from within your story. And then I have to make sure that every scene is leading to the next. I know now I'm repeating myself just like Aristotle. All right, story lovers, that's it for Aristotle. I hope you've enjoyed these podcasts.